Hi, I'm David Stoker, and I want to welcome you to the Better Life and Recovery hashtag Hope Dealer Movement podcast. As a visible and vocal member of the recovery community since 2009, I'm frequently asked questions and for advice from people all the time. Some are curious, some are still using, some are in recovery, and some people just care about somebody who's currently struggling with a hurt habit or hangout. If people in my community have those questions, I guarantee that people everywhere are looking for answers as well. We started this podcast to give you answers and support because not only is recovery real, it is amazing. Hope you enjoy the show. So today we're going to talk about insensitivity and ignorance. But first, I would like to uh, start off by saying uh, January 31st of 2009 was the day I got sober. So as of the 31st of uh, January, I have 10 years in recovery. And because of that, I wanted to share a little bit of my testimony with some people. Uh, Maybe there's some people that don't know a whole lot about it. Uh, This is something that... uh, I talked about last year, but I kind of want to go through it because I think it's a good momentary thing. So I'm just going to read it to you like I would a testimony. Hi, my name is David. I'm a person in long-term recovery. What that means for me is I haven't used alcohol or other drugs since January 31st of 2009. And because of that, today I am vital to my community. Not only that, but I have an amazing family and an awesome life. That said, things in my life weren't always that good. My first memory is being molested by a babysitter when I was three. My father had an alcohol use disorder and my mother left him when I was 10. I was dropped off at my grandparents by my mom when she left him. My grandfather was probably one of the most evil people I'd ever met. He would beat me and then if the beatings were bad enough, he would call him to school and say that I was going to help him in the fields and then keep me out of school for a week or so until all the bruises healed up and then he'd let me go back to school. The summer before seventh grade, my father finally got custody of me. My dad worked overnights um, in a little town called Highland. It's about half an hour outside of East St. Louis. And after about a week and a half, he said, you know what? I'm going to have to go to work tonight. If you wake up in the, the middle of the night, just go back to sleep. I'll be here first thing in the morning with breakfast. So my dad left for work and I took a walk. I walked to the square and I bumped into a kid that was around my age. We started talking. We actually found out that we were both getting ready to go into the same grade. His uh, big brother called us over. We came over and they asked me a question I think there's only one answer to. They said, are you cool? I said, of course I'm cool. And they said, uh, do you smoke? And I said, of course I smoke because I'd been stealing my grandpa's cigarettes for the last couple of years. When the thing went around, it wasn't a cigarette, and, man, I remember after a couple drags, taking a couple hits off of it, for the first time in my life, I actually felt like I fit in somewhere. You know, as a kid in the early 80s, living in Branson, Missouri, I can tell you that I was one of the few kids, maybe the only kid, that was being raised by their grandparents because their mom and dad were split up. I also knew kids weren't getting, hadn't been molested the way I was. I know kids weren't getting beat at home the way I was, and I never felt like I fit in. So for the first time in my life, I felt like I fit in, and I also felt numb and didn't think about all the abuse I'd gone through all those years. And I found that the more I smoked, the number I became. The next night, I met up with the same group of kids, and we went out drinking, and I discovered the same thing with alcohol. The more I drank, the number I became 
the less I thought about the abuse. I found out over time that if I stayed drunk or high, that not only did I not think about the abuse in the past, but I didn't think about everything that was hurt. Let's just say nobody could hurt me now. You know, I always say I loved being numb. Over time, I found that fighting kind of did the same thing. Uh, sleeping around, being with a cute girl kind of did the same thing. More women, more fighting, more alcohol, more drugs, more anger, more, more, more. I was instantly addicted to more. You know, this continued until uh, the summer before my senior year where I ended up getting into some trouble and I made the choice to move back to Missouri. I was probably the only knucklehead I know that moved to southwest Missouri in the late 80s to get away from drugs. At the time, it was uh, alcohol, marijuana, and many things, what I would call like meth light. When I moved to Missouri, I was introduced to methamphetamine. Needless to say, I ended up dropping out of high school. Uh, started breaking into, eventually started breaking into like garages and sheds to get money to pawn so that, well, to pawn stuff so that I'd have money to uh, get drugs. Thanks to that, I ended up turning 21 in Boonville Correctional Center. And I would love to tell you that I got so much great stuff out of, uh, prison, but honestly, I got my GD while I was there, and uh, when I was getting ready to parole out, I had a kid come up and uh, talk to me that I'd been friends with, and he said, where are you paroling out to? I said, I really don't know. I think Springfield, and he said, well, I got family there. I'll hook you up with them, and they will teach you how to cook dope, so I ended up uh, paroling out to Springfield, Missouri, and uh, the night after I got out of prison, I had a needle in my arm for the very first time. And the day after that, I was slinging drugs for the very first time. Prison kind of made me worse. It didn't have a good effect. So I ended up uh, just getting lost in it. Finally, I moved back to uh, the Branson area after about a year of being in Springfield. And at 23, I flew a car off a cliff. I Flew 97 feet, I clipped trees 32 feet in the air, and I ended up dying three times in the ambulance, uh, flying my car off of uh, 165, coming back from the dam into Branson. And when I came out of coma, I was on a morphine drip, and because of the TBI that I got, I had cluster migraines, and I ended up doing opioids for about six months. When the cluster migraines stopped, they cut off my medication, but by that time I was dependent on the opioids. So I started trading meth for opioids. So meth and uh, al meth and uh, meth and morphine, well, meth and opioids, kind of became my drugs of choice. Now from there, I really don't want to get into a big war story. So I'll just say that by the time I finally got sober when I was 36, I had died eight different times. Uh, I've OD'd three times and been brought back with Narcan. I died three times in the car accident. Uh, my sister tried the tough love thing with me one time and she kind of changed her mind and came back to my place about 15 minutes later and she found me unconscious in a bathroom. She was the last person in my life that really cared about me and that gave me some hope. And when she told me she was done, I slashed both my wrists because I was done. Fortunately, she got back in time to uh, get me to a hospital, but they had to give me blood expanders and bring me back. And then the other time was from alcohol poisoning when I was 17. I've been to treatment more times than I can count on one of my hands. I've tried medication. I've tried just about everything, and nothing really worked. Finally, I tried a foxhole prayer, and that was the thing that worked for me. I believe there's multiple pathways to recovery. My pathway comes through Christ, 
That doesn't mean that I don't do a lot of other things on top of it. You know, but part of this, part of staying in recovery is chasing recovery the same way you used to chase everything else that you used to do. You know, I now have 10 years in recovery. I uh, turned the GED that I got into a, an associate's degree, two bachelor's degrees, and a master's degree in social work. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I have worked, I worked eight and a half years with treatment courts, and I worked the last two years, give or take, with uh, the Missouri Recovery Network as the state of Missouri's advocacy and education outreach coordinator. I also started a nonprofit called Better Life and Recovery, which, man, I always say we started off with one event in 2012. In 2013, we did two events. In 2014, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman died. And I remember reading the uh, newspaper articles. Well, I remember going on Facebook and the News Leader, which is our newspaper, and KY3, which is one of the TV channels, I remember reading the comments. Who cares? Just another dead junkie. Uh, another one that stands out in my mind said, we should give this stuff away for free so these people can eliminate themselves from the gene pool. And I realized that's the way that people in my community felt about me. So that year we expanded. We ended up doing, uh, I think we did seven events, including like Recovery Day at Hammonds Field, which uh, is our Springfield. It's the St. Louis Cardinal affiliate that we have here in Springfield. We had a parade of people in recovery, their families and allies around the outfield. One of our representatives threw out the first pitch. Another one of our representatives sang the national anthem. So um, we also did a 5K, 10K recovery run. So we started doing some of those things. In 2015, we filed for a 501c3. In 2016, we partnered with two other organizations to open up the Springfield Recovery Community Center. In 2017, we were one of the first two uh, recovery community centers in the state of Missouri to get funded by the state. Uh, our funding came through the state targeted response, the opioid crisis grant. And last year we did, we had over 700 groups. We had over 10,000 people come through our doors. We had another 3,000 people that engaged in events that we did outside of the recovery community center. You know, that's the amazing thing about what we've been able to do is really watch it grow. I mean, last year, our stream team picked three and a half tons of trash out of Missouri Riverways. We've uh, painted 11 elementary school playgrounds here in Springfield. Just people in recovery and their families giving back to make their community a better place. In uh, 2017, I was presented with the Missouri Mental Health Champion uh, Award for Recovery. Last year, I went to... Uh, Hollywood, and I was one of five people from around the nation to get one of the SAMHSA Voice Awards. And not, and then the end of 2018, I was named one of the Therapists of the Year by the Springfield Business Journal for Springfield, Missouri. And I don't say any of this to brag. I say this to let you know the amazing things that we can accomplish in recovery. So, I mean, some of the other things, I mean, I, I've trained probably around 4,000 people in a how to use an Arcan and Rescue Breathe, including training every probation and parole officer in Southwest Missouri. It's kind of neat. I did three trainings over a day for three days and trained uh, 278 probation officers. And it was really neat to stand in front of them as a person in long-term recovery and let them know, hey, this is what people in recovery do if you, uh, if you work with them and if you give them an opportunity. So, Man, today I tell you, uh, I'm not a miracle. You know, I, uh, I'm not alone. 
there are 23 and a half million people in long-term recovery. And yet for some weird reason, we look at people in recovery like they're unicorns or anomalies. We're not anomalies. We just need that support in our community. You know, uh, but we need to get out there. We need to be visible and vocal. People in recovery need to be out there sharing their stories, not just with other people in recovery, but with everybody in the community. We don't, and that's the reason why when people hear substance use disorder, they don't think of somebody that is killing it, working a full-time job, being an amazing parent, being a pillar in the community, making their community better. They think of somebody homeless under a bridge breaking into their house. Uh, when they hear recovery, they don't think this is something that some people are going to do for the rest of their lives. They think of something that's only on a temporary basis. You know, uh, two, a year and a half ago, we had one of our state reps here in Missouri uh, on the House floor in Jefferson City say dopers don't care about anyone. Giving them a get-out-of-jail-free card will not stop them from dumping bodies because they're nothing but dopers as he uh, spoke out against the Good Samaritan 911 bill. I mean, that's why we need to be visible and vocal because that's the kind of stuff we deal with every day. It makes it really hard for people with active substance use disorders to ask for help. We know how people talk about us. We know how they're going to treat us whenever they find out we have a substance use disorder. We will become one of those people all because we have a disease, a chronic progressive disease. It's a disease that kills more people than car accidents uh, in 20... 17, we lost 72,000 people in the United States. That's over 200 people a day. And that number will continue to increase. And even once we start seeing maybe a, uh, as we attack the opioid crisis, the opioid epidemic, they're going to find out exactly what a lot of us have been saying for a long time. This isn't an epidemic. This is a drug pandemic. This is a, a pandemic period. We're seeing increases, not just in opioid deaths, but in benzodiazepine deaths, in cocaine deaths, in methamphetamine deaths, and alcohol still kills more people than all those other drugs combined. So this is something that's impacting everybody. You can't be white enough or black enough or rich enough or poor enough or smart enough or dumb enough to not develop a substance use disorder. So it happens not just to those people, it happens to everybody. And we've got to do more for those people living with substance use disorders because those are our friends, those are our co-workers, those are our families, those are our, they're our children. They're our nieces and nephews. You know, now once again, to clarify something really quick, addiction is a chronic brain disease. And that's a fact that was recognized by the medical community back in 1956. It's a disease that should be treated as one. And it still amazes me that we have people that are arguing that. It boggles my mind how you can sit there and argue that a, a substance use disorder isn't a disease. I've, the, what? Uh, part of the reason is because, uh, well, let's just go with one of the common, most common reasons. Because they chose to do that to themselves. 75% of the people with type 2 diabetes have it because of sedentary lifestyles and poor eating habits. They chose to live their life that way. They didn't choose to develop type 2 diabetes. What I used, I used for a reason. It helped me numb and escape my trauma. But you know what? Whenever I was a little kid and somebody said, what do you want to be? I didn't look at them and go, man, I want to grow up to be a, a convict and a drug addict. I want to have a substance use disorder. I never said any of that. I had all these dreams, but unfortunately, a choice over time can turn into a disease. It happens not just with addiction. It happens with diabetes. It happens with a lot of cardiovascular diseases. There's tons of different diseases that start with choices but become diseases over time. 
Another argument is, well, you know, I used to do drugs and I didn't develop a problem. Well, unfortunately, substance use disorders, like a lot of other chronic progressive diseases, have a huge, uh, have a couple different huge factors like genetics and environment. So just because somebody uses just like I use doesn't mean they're going to develop a substance use disorder. I have a friend that's in his 40s and he lives off of Little Debbie's and Polish sausage. I swear to God, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But he's about five, he's like five, 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 six, and probably weighs a buck 20. If I ate like that, I'd weigh 400 pounds and be dead, right? He has different genetics than I do. I mean, look at lung cancer. We say that lung cancer is because of, you know, we say that smoking, right, greatly increases your risk for lung cancer. But if you look at China and Japan, you're going to see, especially in Japan, that they have a lot more men, like almost twice as many men smoke cigarettes, and Japan is here in the United States, and less, and yet they have less than 25% of the cases of lung cancer that we have here. Why? Their genetics are different. The environment's different. Their diets are different. So there's a lot of different factors that go into this. So medical community said it in 1956. The APA has recognized it. Uh, the World Health Organizi- Organization recognizes it. If those huge bodies recognize it, then I'm sorry that because of your anecdotal experiences or your ignorance, and ignorance here doesn't mean stupid, it just means that you lack the information needed to come to the right conclusion. So ignorance doesn't, all that means is you need a little more education to learn that ignorance stops you from saying it. Or maybe because you had a bad experience with a a, a parent or a grandparent or an aunt and uncle that had a substance use disorder. You know what? It's killing people. It's killing people's kids. No, No parent should ever have to bury their kids. So let's just drop it. So here in Missouri, we've been kind of fortunate. Uh, Randall Randall Williams actually signed a standing order for uh, Narcan last year. And that was awesome because even though we had third-party access to Narcan, which is the medication that reverses uh, an opioid overdose, there were still some pharmacies that didn't have it, uh, that didn't have a protocol doctor. Because that's what you had to do was call a protocol doctor. So he went ahead and signed a standing order, which made it a lot easier to get. We've also had some amazing uh, state reps in Missouri that have really worked hard to pass either legislation that supports recovery or legislation that supports people staying alive long enough to find recovery. Um, Everything from like Stephen Lynch to Holly Rader, they've been very, very big on a couple of the... uh, Leg- uh, of the bills that have passed. I know Cora Faith Walker, I believe, has is helping right now with syringe access. That's something we'll talk about really quick. Um, I'll probably do something on harm reduction in the future. But let's just look at syringe access. People always say, well, if you give people free syringes, everybody's going to shoot up. Whenever they ask, say that, I always pull a syringe out of my bag and I'm like, hey, here's a fresh, here's a fresh sterile syringe. You want to go shoot some heroin? Nobody's ever taken me up on it. I'm just going to do this really quick because I'm not getting into harm reduction in this. But if you look at um, syringe access, it lowers the risk of HIV. It lowers the risk of hepatitis C, which can save states tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars every year in healthcare costs. Uh, It also gives people somebody to... It gives them that personal contact. Like my friend Chad Sabora says in St. Louis, it's not about the needle, it's about the human connection, right? So instead of having somebody judge you and lord over you and treat you like crap, you have somebody that meets you where you're at and says, you know what, I care about you and I don't want you to get HIV or Hep C. 
If you already have it, I don't want you to share it with the people that you love. So please, if you have uh, used syringes, please bring them in here to us and we'll provide you with sterile syringes. And if you ever decide that you need help with anything, if it's depression, if you're hungry, if it's housing, maybe you decide that you don't want to use anymore, anything you want help with, please come back here and we'll do everything we can to help you. What's weird is when we treat people with compassion instead of judgment, we see a positive response. In the U.S. Surgeon General's report on substance use disorders, he, uh, it says that communities with syringe access sites get people into treatment three to five times faster than communities that don't have them. Like I said, it's all about compassion, authenticity, uh, unconditional positive regard, empathy, treating somebody like they have value. And people don't have to be sober to have value. Everybody inherently has value. We all have worth and we need to treat people like that. That's what syringe access does. You know, I also want to thank some of the parents uh, like uh, the Good Samaritan 911 bill uh it's also called Bailey and Cody's Law. Uh, Jim Marshall, who was Cody's dad, helped us with the documentary. Uh, one of our state reps, Holly Rader, she helped us with the documentary called Not My Child. It's been amazing to create a documentary to reach out to parents. We felt that parents really didn't have the education that they needed. I mean, kids are getting minimal education, but they're at least getting something. But with parents who are kind of the first and last uh, lines of defense for our kiddos, man, they're getting absolutely nothing. So now we have a documentary that has a bunch of parents who either have kids in recovery, kids still using, or have lost kids to overdoses, normalizing the conversation, letting them know that if they need help, they should come forward and ask it, right? Because once again, no parent should ever have to bury their kid ever. So we've got people that are killing it around the state. And we have a lot more good stuff going on, right? We've got the Moho Project where we're getting Narcan out there, trying to train and equip people to uh, reduce opioid deaths. And uh, between that and the state targeted response, the opioid crisis, which is now the state opioid responses grant, we're actually seeing some amazing programs get started. You know, uh, we now have NAR certified housing. If you don't know what that is, it's an accreditation for recovery residences so that we don't have a bunch of messes like they've been having, say, down in South Florida. Um, California, it's weird. If it's a really nice climate, if it's really warm, we find that there's a lot of people that are doing a lot of dirty stuff there. You know, but what NART does is uh, through MoCrisp, they go in and they basically um, walk through houses and they make sure that these recovery residences are meeting standards. And then they get their certification. It's good for two years. It's no different than like uh, a residential treatment being uh, JCO certified or CARF certified, right? It lets us know that they're at least doing some good stuff so that we're not sending people to a recovery residence where they're sleeping on the floor for 200 bucks a week or they're actually getting paid to go out and use and take UAs. There's a lot of dirty players out there. So that's what I like about the NARS certification. Um, the problem, though, is grants are temporary, right? I mean, what happens when these grants go away? You know, we've got medication first model. We've got housing getting paid for. We've got people that, whose medication are getting paid for. You know, as one of the people who uh, is the director of one of the recovery community centers here in Missouri that's getting funded through uh, the, uh, the federal grants, what's going to happen when those grants go away? What happens to those programs uh, that are killing it? You know, what about Epic, uh, where we actually have peers that are going into hospitals and working with people after they've overdosed or talked about having a substance use disorder? What happens to those programs and how do we keep them kicking butt like we are? We got to find ways 
not just to treat and fund treatment, I mean, not just to fund treatment better, but to fund recovery supports, period. I know that we've got some money here for recovery supports, but a lot of that money tends to go towards people that are also providing outpatient treatment. And that's needed. A lot of uh, those programs are in rural areas and inner city where there wasn't a lot of treatment to begin with. But we also need these recovery supports. I need peers to be getting paid more than 10 bucks an hour. They need to get paid a living wage just like everybody else does for what they're doing. You know, um, we're also one of the only states without a PDMP. In fact, we're the only state without a PDMP. And I know we're pushing for that, but there's some concerns there. Uh, with the prescription drug monitoring program, I don't know if we have the infrastructure laid out to really support that because imagine I am used to going to three doctors and getting my prescription and then taking each of those prescriptions to three different pharmacists and getting it filled. Now, all of a sudden, uh, the, when I go to that second doctor, he says, sorry, but that prescription got filled yesterday. And when I go to that second pharmacy, he says, sorry, but you just got that. Now, all of a sudden, I don't have enough medication to stop the cravings and to stop me from going into, de into detox. And if you've never gone through detox with opioids, I always say, imagine the worst you ever felt with the flu. Imagine the worst cramps you've ever had in your life. And then add the inability to hold down anything, not water, not Sprite, not crackers, for 10 to 14 days. All three of them at the same time, knowing all you have to do is take one pill, do one line, give yourself one shot, it instantly goes away. It makes it really difficult not to continue using, not to do something to uh, escape that pain and agony. So now all of a sudden we have somebody who's used to taking, say, morphine or Oxycontin or whatever it is that they're used to taking and getting all those prescriptions. Now that they can't get it, whenever those cravings start and they start detoxing, they're going to go out and they're going to find street drugs. And unfortunately, at least if I'm, say, if I'm eating an Oxy, I know exactly what's in that Oxy, right? But if I go out and buy a button of heroin, it could be 20% pure. It could be 80% pure. It could be heroin. It could be fentanyl or carfentanyl. We have no idea what we're getting, right? We're kind of playing Russian roulette every time. So we really need, to, we need easier access to treatment. We need our pharmacists and our doctors trained about the medication first model and how to get people to access it so that they're not just cutting people off, but they're actually getting people the assistance that they need so that they don't get diverted to street drugs. I mean, that's a cool thing about the medication first model, right, is we can get people on that medication really quickly. The problem is if they're not getting referred, if the pharmacists and doctors don't know about it, then people aren't getting there and they're not getting the help they need and those... PDMP is really good prevention and early intervention, but unless we build the infrastructure and educate the right people, it's going to stack a lot of bodies on the back end for people that are chronic long-term users. Um, good plan, but we need to lay the groundwork out a little bit better. So I think it's it can be a step in the right direction if it's done right, right? Because there's a right and a wrong way to do that. Also, do we prosecute people that are doctor shopping or do we treat them and help them? They're sick people. You don't put a sick person in jail. You put a sick person in the hospital. We need treatment for people, right? These are crimes. They're crimes people need to go to jail for. Murder, child molestation. I mean, there's tons of crimes out there that people need to go to jail for. Having a substance use disorder that's active should not be one of those things. Now, treatment, treatment works, especially when combined with medications, Suboxone, Methadone, Vivitrol. If you have a problem with that, please attend a training. I know in Missouri, we're doing the OCMT, 
the opioid crisis management trainings through the uh, SOR grant used to be the STR grant go to one of those and get some facts about how those things uh, help people look at the research MAT not even MAT it's not medication assisted treatment right any more than it's 12-step assisted treatment or it's Jesus assisted treatment uh, I mean Jesus assisted recovery recovery is recovery I don't care if it's medication I don't care if it's church i don't care if it's 12-step meeting if you're in recovery you're in recovery you shouldn't have to put any prefixes on your recovery so if you're in recovery you know what you're killing it keep killing it keep doing what you're doing right medication decreases deaths it increases treatment attendance that's a winning combination it also increases people going to uh, support meetings dead people don't get sober they never find a recovery and if you believe in God and you truly care about somebody's salvation, you don't redeem a dead person's soul. So you have to appreciate medication, psychopharmacology. You have to appreciate what it does. It saves lives. Just like you have to appreciate Narcan. You have to appreciate uh, all those different things. Medication is awesome. I know people that have been on medication forever. When are they going to get off? I don't know. I'm on medication right now for uh, cholesterol. And even though my cholesterol is where it needs to be, my doctor doesn't say get off. He says, you know what? Your medication's working. You need to keep taking it. Period. Uh, part of our current problem is always going to be funding, especially for treatment. Uh, we need less wait time for residential treatment. We're still working on that, but that takes funding. If you are rich, if you have commercial insurance, we can plug you in, right? If you're a pregnant IV user and you have Medicaid, we can plug you right in. But if you don't hit some of those... Uh, really really uh, high priority populations a lot of times we die that's what happens and even though we have some medication that might work for alcohol and opioids cocaine benzodiazepines amphetamines those drugs that we've kind of forgotten about because of the opioid crisis they're still killing tons of people every single day so what do we need to do you know, Don Coyos of the Mohican Nation nails one of our other big problems. He says, imagine you have a sick tree living in a corrupted soil. He says like a 100-acre forest that's sick. And if you were to uproot that tree, put it in a nursery, put it in nutrient-dense soil, give it adequate sun and adequate water, once it starts to get healthy, you would never uproot it and replant it right back in that same corrupted soil in that same sick forest. And yet, right now, when somebody gets out of jail, when somebody gets out of prison, when somebody gets out of treatment, we're plugging them right back in the same sick communities that they came out of. We need to heal our communities, period. We need to create opportunities to grow, opportunities for progress. If treatment is surgery, then recovery supports our physical therapy. We need to fund physical therapy. Some people just need physical therapy. They don't even need surgery. For the people who need surgery, by all means, let's plug them into residential treatment. But if the biggest indicator of somebody remaining in recovery is them attaining three to five years, we need those physical therapy recovery supports, right? Physical therapy to follow them on and on and on and on. So we need to make sure that recovery supports are being funded. Um, we need more recovery housing, uh, recovery community centers. We need more felon-friendly employers. Uh, we need to utilize our peer workforce. We've got a lot of people that are peers that can't find jobs, and if they do, they pay $8.50, 9 bucks an hour, and they're not able to pay their bills off that. So we need that peer workforce, not just those jobs, but we need to expand what they're doing.
you know, we need things that give people structure, stability, that instill a sense of pride in them and that restore people's hope. Right. And we need more people in recovery out there sharing their stories of success so that they can be hope dealers and imbue people with that sense of hope. You know, um, we need to create fertile soil so people continue to grow. So in order to do that, we have to come together with with uh, compassion, acceptance and empathy. Um, you know, I want to say recovery is real. I'm living proof. Missouri is doing some things really, really well, and they have a lot of amazing opportunities to continue doing better. But this isn't a panacea, right? Each of these, if administered properly, is a piece of the puzzle. We just don't have the whole puzzle. I don't think we ever will, but each piece saves lives. I like that. I like lives being saved. I like sober people in recovery. So... Really, that's all I got to say, man. Be a beacon of hope, a voice of compassion, an advocate for recovery. Come to Recovery Advocacy Day. Uh, make friends with your legislators and let them know. Invite them to your place, whether it's a recovery residence, recovery community center, or a treatment center for a, uh, for a tour. Let them come in. Uh, please, if you're not plugged into the Springfield Recovery Community Center, if you're in southwest Missouri, get plugged in. We have tons of events and tons of things that we're doing. Uh, around the state, the Missouri Recovery Network and the Missouri Coalition for Recovery Support Providers. Those are also um, things to get plugged into around the state. And Countrywide uh, Facing Addiction is another great one uh, to get a hold of. Uh, there's also Faces and Voices of Recovery. There's a lot of really good programs. There's a lot of amazing people that are running these things, you know, that can help you find answers. Right. If you're a family member, get plugged into a support group. If you are a person with substance use disorder, whether it's active or, or you're in recovery, get plugged into a support group. I don't care if it's Jesus or like a celebrate recovery or secular like smart recovery or spiritual like one of uh, like AA or NA or CA. Get plugged into something or HA. Right. And definitely get involved in your community. Community service should never be well. Good service work, right, is setting up chairs, making coffee, unlocking doors, making yourself necessary to a meeting because if I feel necessary, I'm going to show up. That's awesome. But you know what? That's first step stuff, in my opinion. You know, and I don't mean that in a 12th step way. I, I mean that in uh, that's a beginner thing. That's an early sobriety thing, right? Recovery, make yourself necessary to the community that you live in, right? Uh, volunteer somewhere. Let people around you know that you're in recovery. Share your story. Do that stuff because people need to hear it. People need to hear your story of recovery and they can't hear us if we're locked in meetings with a bunch of other people in recovery. Go to those meetings, but get out in the community and do stuff too. And if you live in Southwest Missouri and you can't find stuff to do, get a hold of me. We'll get you stuff. We volunteer at all kinds of places from Harmony House, which is the largest domestic violence shelter in the state of Missouri. We've helped them out with stuff. Uh, the stream team, go pick up some trash out of the riverways and float at the same time. What an amazing thing. So lots of, uh, lots of amazing things out there to do. Come paint a playground with us. Uh, help us put on some of our events. Uh, be one of the people that goes into one of the residential treatment places around here and shares uh, recovery with them. Uh, take one of the meetings in. Get a hold of me. Uh, call the Springfield Recovery Community Center. Uh, yeah. Man, have a blessed week, guys. In closing, I just want to thank you for listening to the podcast. 
please join us every week for new episodes. If you want to connect with us further, if you have any questions, topics you'd like to hear in the future, or maybe would like to be on the podcast sometime, you can connect with us at betterlifeandrecovery.com. Uh, there's a Better Life and Recovery page on Facebook, or you can, uh, we're on Twitter, uh, B-L-I-R underscore N-P-O. Also, this podcast is part of the Studio DNA Podcast Network. You can find out more about the network at studiodna.media. Thanks a lot. Y'all have a great week.